Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. Well, before we do get started, I do want to say this program is brought to you by the financial support of our listeners, and I in particular want to thank Mike, Mike, and Sue so much for their support, as well as August. And you can support the show at support.greatdetectives.net. Also, over at greatdetectives.net, you can read my review of the final Philip Marlowe novel, playback and you can also subscribe to all of my reviews through the kindle store and you can try that service out free for two weeks well now it's time for today's episode of dragnet the original air date march the 9th of 1950 and the episode is the big thank you the story you are about to hear is true Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A confessed murderess is paroled from the state prison for women. After seven months, the parole office loses contact with her. Your job, find her. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, March 9th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working a day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. We were on our way back from the state building, and it was 2.45 p.m. when we got to the city hall, room 29. Handwriting analysis. Want to have a seat, Fred? Okay, thanks. I'll see if Don's around. Maybe in the back room. All right. Don Meyer. Don, you here? Yeah, come in just a minute. Oh, hi, Ben. Got a quick job for you, Don. Can you spare a few minutes? Thanks, so. Hi, Joe. Didn't hi. see you. I'd like to have you meet uh, Fred Galloway, state parole. Fred, this is Don Myers, our handwriting man. Mm, how I are know you? Got a couple of signatures here. I'd like to have you check them now if you can. No, I can try. Let's see what you got. You want to show them, Fred? Yeah. Uh, these uh, three sheets here, Don, mark November, December, January. I'd like to know if the signatures on them... Compare with the signatures on these two here. They're marked February and March. Let me see. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this shouldn't take long. Right, why don't you fellas have a seat? Huh? Yeah, okay. How's this thing shape up, Fred? You figure that the Johnson woman's jumped her parole? Got me. I don't know what to think. How long's it been since you got out of prison? Well, let me check you out on the details. I got the dope right here. All right, fine. Annie Marie Johnson... You sent up for a life term, 1933, murdered her husband, John, shot him to death. Started appealing for parole, 1940, finally won it May 14th last year. Paroled into the custody of Mrs. Laura Jean Muller. Mm-hmm. 
Where does this Mrs. Muller live? Down Wilmington. Old friend of the Johnson woman. She fought for ten years to get her released from Tehachapi. Have you been in touch with Mrs. Muller lately, Fred? Only by mail. We've been sending her monthly report forms all along. She's the person that Annie Johnson was paroled to, so the form has to be filled out and then signed by Mrs. Muller and mailed back to me. Yeah, I know. And that's where you figured that something was wrong. Well, we got the February and March reports back from her on time. All the usual questions answered properly. And it was the signature. Writing didn't look like Mrs. Muller's at all. You think the Johnson woman is faking the signature? Maybe. Tried to contact the Muller house half a dozen times the past couple of days. Nobody home. There you go, man. You got it? Yeah. Let me see. These three here, November, December, January, they were signed by the same person. Yeah. Signatures on the February and March reports, uh... They're pretty bad imitations. One person signed these two. Another person signed these. No match at all. Well, then the signatures on the last two reports were forged. I'd say so. She went up for murder. That's your department. You want to run it down? Sure. What's it add up to? Could be a lot of things. Could be nothing. Annie Johnson ought to know. Ben and I checked out of the office and drove down to Wilmington. We located the home of Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Muller on Seaboard Drive, just off Anaheim Street was an old-fashioned two-story house set back on a big corner lot along with plenty of shrubbery. It was a faded gray with lots of Victorian gingerbread hung all over it. Fancy carved gables, carriage driveway with hitching posts, and pieces of thick colored glass set in some kind of a design in the window of the front door. Out in the harbor beyond Terminal Islands, you could hear the foghorns. They sure get the fog out here, don't they? It's pretty thick today. My aunt used to live just above here, Grand Avenue. Oh, uh-huh. Couldn't take the fog, so she moved out the valley. Mm. Garden could stand some taking care of. Yeah, weeds are doing fine. Want to try it again? What do you think? Let's try the neighbors, huh? Yeah, all right. That house across the street must be somebody there. I saw a woman shaking a dust mop out the window when we drove up. All right. Kind of a bleak-looking spot up here on the hill, isn't it? Not many houses around. Yeah, and this fog's doing nothing for me. Chills you right down to the bone. What's the name on the mailbox here? Let's see. Miss Flora Carpenter. Well, maybe she can tell us something. Are you the sewing machine man? No, ma'am. We're police officers. Like to ask you a few questions. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you came about my singer. No, ma'am. I can't do any more work on my peasant skirt until the machine's fixed. And it has to be done by Saturday. Our folk dancing group's having a big jamboree Saturday night. Will you step inside? Thank you. This is Sergeant Romero. My name's Friday. Oh, how do you do? Oh, folks, so refreshing, isn't it? Very vitalizing. Yes, ma'am. Are you acquainted with Mr. and Mrs. Muller across the street, Miss Carmen? The Muellers? Yes, I've known them for years. And uh, they have an Annie Johnson living with them? Yes, one of my very good friends. She's employed as a housemaid for the Mullers, is that right? Well, I guess you could call it that. Actually, she's more of a companion to Mrs. Mueller since poor Mr. Mueller got sick. What's his trouble? His mind. Poor man just lost his senses. He's at the state hospital at Norwalk. Mm-hmm. 
When did they send him there? Let me see. This is March. It must have been last November. Yes, became violent. Do you know where Mrs. Muller is now? In the sanitarium out near Pasadena. Not well at all. And um, Annie Johnson, is she still living at Muller's house across the street? Oh, yes. She went downtown to do some shopping today. Did she say when she'd be back? No, she didn't. But we have a meeting of our book appreciation club at 8.30 tonight here at my house. And I certainly don't think she'd miss the meeting. I see. (laughs) Miss Carpenter, do you happen to know the name of the sanitarium where Miss Muller stays? Gareways. That's what Annie told me. Garraway's rest home out by Pasadena. Mm-hmm. Have any of the neighbors been out to visit her? Well, no, we haven't. Annie said the doctors there thought it'd be better if Mrs. Mueller didn't have visitors. I see. I wonder if you'd tell us where we could find a public telephone in the neighborhood. Oh, you can use my phone, Sergeant. It's mm-hmm. right back there in the hall. Fine, thank you. I'll call him, Joe. All right. I'll have the operator charge it to our office. You room. sure you can find your way back there, Sergeant? It's right under General Pershing's picture. Yes, ma'am. No trouble. I was just thinking, Sergeant Friday. Yes, ma'am. Would you know anything about repairing sewing machines? No, I'm afraid not. Oh. Well, Fluffy, there you are. (laughs) This is Anna Johnson's cat, Sergeant. Isn't he simply gorgeous? Look at that. Yes, ma'am. Nice Genuine person. Annie brought him with her when she came to live with the Mueller's. Did uh, Mrs. Johnson and Mrs. Muller always seem to get along fairly well together to you? I mean, no arguments? Oh, my, no. Annie's the easiest person in the world to get along with. All us girls in the neighborhood just adore her. Uh, Joe. You talk to Sanitarium? Yeah, I double-checked the name. Yeah? Mrs. Muller's not there. They never heard of her. Ben and I left and interviewed some of the other people in the neighborhood. They all had the same high opinion of Annie Johnson as Miss Carpenter did. They all had the impression that Mrs. Muller was under doctor's care at the Garraway Rest Home in Pasadena. Annie Johnson told them so. We found out that Mrs. Muller had one other living relative besides her husband, a niece, Lorraine Muller. She lived out on Norwich Drive in Beverly Hills. 5.30 p.m., Ben and I drove back to the office and made a spot check of every private rest home and sanitarium listed in the Los Angeles area. Mrs. Muller wasn't at any of them. We called the state hospital at Norwalk, and they informed us that Joseph Muller was there, having been committed the 2nd of November the previous year. He was critically ill. We put in another call to the Muller home. Still no answer. 6.15 p.m., we drove out to Beverly Hills to the home of Mrs. Muller's niece, Lorraine. She was a tall, good-looking girl with blonde hair and a bad cough. I don't think I can help you, Sergeant. I moved out of my aunt's house three months ago. <coughs> I haven't seen her since. Uh, were you staying at the house when Annie Johnson came to live there? I was raised in that house. Mother and Dad died when I was a baby. Uncle Joe and Aunt Laura took care of me. They're wonderful people. Would you mind telling us why you moved? I don't mind. <coughs> Everything was fine until Annie Johnson came. I didn't get along with her. We fought all the time. Oh, is that so? I don't know why. I just didn't like her. <coughs> When Annie moved in, she took over the whole house. Uh, what's the connection between your aunt and Mrs. Johnson? Any blood relationship no, there? No, no. Annie was a school chum of Aunt Laura's. When they sent her to prison for killing her husband, she wrote for help. And your aunt helped her? She worked for 11 years at it. I don't know how much money she spent. Lawyers, you know. Yeah. <coughs> she finally got Annie. 
parole. And then uh, <coughs> she took Mrs. Johnson on as a housekeeper, is that right? Yeah. She never did any work. She acted like she owned the house. Like my aunt and uncle owed her everything they'd done for. When's the last time you heard from your aunt? It was a few months ago, around Christmas time. I called her up to wish her a Merry Christmas. You have no idea where Mrs. Muller might be now. Some friends that she could be staying with, maybe? No. Aunt Laura only has a few friends. They all live in the neighborhood. She's not in the habit of going off without telling anyone, is she? No, never anything like that. I don't understand it. Something must be wrong. Annie, do you think she's done something? Do you? No, she couldn't have. She owes everything to Aunt Laura. Her freedom, good home, nice clothes, money. Everything my aunt could give her. Some people are like that. If it's free, they never get too much. Before we left Lorraine Muller's house, we got the name of her aunt's lawyer. We had dinner at a lunch counter on La Cienega, and then we drove back to Wilmington to the Muller house. Lights were burning in the front windows. The fog was thick now. Guess that's her singing. Yeah. You want to ring the bell? Mm-hmm. Can you see in through the curtain, Joe? Yeah, she didn't hear it. Let's ring it again. There, here she comes. Yes? Are you Mrs. Johnson? Yes, that's right. What is it? Police officers, our identification. Oh. Yes, won't you come in? Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. We'll go in the parlor, shall we? All right. No. What are February and March? Yes. We think the signatures on those two reports are forged. Oh, those. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I, I don't know what to say. I, I really didn't think it was that serious. I knew the reports had to be sent in. Did you sign Mrs. Muller's name on them? Well, yes, I did. You see, Laura Muller's at a sanitarium now, resting up. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to bother her with all this business, so I signed them and put them in the mail. But forgery, I, I didn't think it was that serious. Mm-hmm. Which sanitarium is Mrs. Muller staying at? Garraway's. A very nice place. It's near Pasadena. She's been there about two months now. Have you been out to visit her yet? No, I haven't. I'm a little ashamed of myself. I've just been too busy keeping up the house here. It's lots of work. Yes, I understand. I suppose you drove Mrs. Muller to the sanitarium. As a matter of fact, I didn't. You see, we don't have a car, so she took a taxi cab. Have you telephoned Mrs. Muller at the sanitarium? Yes, just once, the day she went in. She's there for a good rest. I don't feel that anyone should bother. Not even myself. Does she have any other relatives? Besides her husband, that is. None at all. Poor Mr. Muller. We had to send him away, you know, to Warwick State Hospital. Yes, ma'am. Got out of hand. Just terrible. He almost murdered poor Laura once, and those were awful days. He's much better off where he is. Yeah, it's too bad. Well... That's about all, Miss Johnson. Oh, here. Let me show you to the door. Thanks. You'd uh, better contact your parole officer the first thing in the morning and clear up this matter of the reports. I'll do that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Good night, Miss Johnson. Thanks again. All right. Good night. What time you got? 20 minutes after 8. Hmm. The light just went on in the attic. Yeah. What do you think? We better go take a look around. What do you think we'll find? I don't know. Maybe a reason for some of those lies she told us. 
8.35 p.m., Annie Johnson left the house and crossed the street to Miss Carpenter's place. In the Muller house, in a small desk in one of the rear bedrooms on the first floor, we found a file for Mrs. Muller's business papers. In the file, we located three of her insurance policies. There was one for $5,000 and two for $3,500. Each policy had a writer attached, changing the beneficiary from Joseph Muller, the husband, to Annie Johnson. $12,000 worth of insurance. Yeah. Let's get them back in this folder. Did you get the policy numbers? Yeah. What's this? Let's see. Phone bill. Light bill. Here's one. Labor bill. Dollar an hour paid to Tom McCray, charged Danny Johnson. Uh-huh. Let's go. Yeah, I want to get this address here. Tom McCray, East Jefferson. There's a cat. Yeah, let's go see what we can find upstairs, huh? It's a pretty cat. We went upstairs to the second floor of the house and searched the rooms. We went up another flight of stairs to the attic. For a full half hour, we searched through dozens of corrugated cartons crammed with souvenirs and picture postcards. Joe, come here. Yeah. Take a look. Wrapped in newspaper. Thirty-two-twenty Colt. Three empty cartridges. Mm-hmm. We got a gun and we got a suspect. Those insurance policies could be the motive. Let's pray to God there's no victim. Listening to Dragnet for the step by step solution to an actual police case. 10 p.m. An immediate stakeout was placed on the Muller residence in case Annie Johnson made an attempt to leave during the night. Ben and I took the gun that we'd found to the crime lab for analysis. The next morning, we checked with the Muller's family attorney. He had no idea as to the whereabouts of Mrs. Muller. But he told us that about three months ago, she'd ordered him to drop a new will for her. Under the new provisions, Annie Johnson was to be the sole heir of the Muller house and property, plus an additional $1,500 in bonds. Friday, March 10th, 11 a.m. While Ben checked with the insurance company, I met with Captain Elliott of Homicide. You got everything but a victim, huh? Where are you looking? We'd like to shake down the Muller house again before we look anyplace else. Didn't have a chance to give it a thorough going over last night. You're sold on the idea it's a Johnson woman? Looks like it. Sure it couldn't be a freak disappearance? No, sir, not in my book. Annie Johnson's got some big reasons for lying to us. I'd like to find them. How do you figure on doing that? Well, if we could pull her in and question her, just to get her away from the Muller place, I'd, I'd like to take a detail of men out there and shake the house from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Just checked with the insurance companies that issued Miss Muller's policies. Yeah. We got it right. Annie Johnson gets the door if Mrs. Muller dies. Oh. Something else. The changes in the policies were made during the last two months at her home. It doesn't jive. Why not? Well, Annie Johnson told us that Mrs. Muller's been in the sanitarium for more than two months. Here's mm-hmm. a capper, Joe. What's that? Gil and Cenas went out to the state hospital at Norwalk to talk to Mr. Muller. Yeah. Joseph Muller died at 8 o'clock last night. Death from natural causes. What's that prove? Wait a minute. When, um, when Joseph Muller was committed to the institution, Annie Johnson figured prominently in that commitment. She had a lot to do with sending him away. Didn't take any chances, did she? Annie Johnson is left with the house, the bonds, and the insurance money. She had all the answers. Yeah, all but the right one. While Captain Elliott called in Annie Johnson and questioned her, Ben and I, together with a detail of men from Homicide and Lieutenant Lee Jones from the crime lab, drove out to Wilmington and started a thorough search of the Muller house. We took it floor by floor, starting with the attic. 
By four o'clock that afternoon, we had searched the attic and the second floor completely without finding any additional physical evidence. 5.30 p.m., still nothing. The fog was coming in thick now. Captain Elliott called and said the Johnson woman was on her way home. The search went on. Anyone checked the cellar yet? Let's give it a look, huh? Joe, come on down. Lee's with me. We're checking some stains. Uh, what do you got, Lee? Picked up this line of stains here, Joe. They run down from the top of the stairs. Pretty faint. Let me see. Mm-hmm. Try a few drops of benzodine, see what happens. Okay. Let's have a look around, Gil, see what we can find. There's no lights down here. You'll have to use your flash. I got one. Not much of anything, is it? I guess they use the attic for their storage place. Yeah. Wait a minute. Put the light over this way, will you, Gil? No, no, in the corner. That's it. See something? I don't know. Yeah, have a look here. Mm. New patch of cement. Looks pretty new alongside the rest. Yeah. There's a sleds and a couple of shovels back in the garage. Get them, will you? Yeah. Joe. Yeah. Things turned blue. Blood. Lee Jones took some sample scrapings and went back to the crime lab to give them a precipitant test to determine if the stains were made by human or animal blood. We broke away the patch of new cement work in the cellar and we began digging. 6.30 p.m., Annie Johnson came home. We met her in the living room. Sergeant, I wonder if you'd mind explaining this intrusion. No, not at all. Will you sit down? I believe I'm the one to offer hospitality here. It's my house. Is it, Miss Johnson? Well, it's in my charge. It's my responsibility. Yes, ma'am, it is. We'd just like to clear up a few things, that's all. I think the police department's taken up enough of my time. I spent half the day at the city hall answering silly questions. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have an appointment at the beauty shop at 7 o'clock. Maybe you better cancel it. I don't see any reason why I should. What is that noise? Coming from the cellar. Someone's down there. They're police officers, Miss Johnson. We're searching the house. Searching this house? With whose permission? Maybe they didn't make it clear to you downtown. We've got a good reason to believe that a crime's been committed. Why? Mrs. Muller. She's missing. I told your Captain Elliot this afternoon, Laura could have left the sanitarium. She might have gone east to visit some friends in Cincinnati, I think. She has some friends in Cincinnati. How could Mrs. Muller leave the sanitarium? She was never there. Maybe she didn't stay at Garraway's. Could have been another rest home. But she said you phoned her at Garraway's. You said you talked to her there. Those men downstairs, they... They're going to dig up the whole house? That's right. Uh, this bill, Mrs. Johnson, would you mind telling us what it was for? Well, there was a section of the cellar floor. It had never been cemented. I decided to have it done while Laura was away. The men are digging it up, Mrs. Johnson. Well, why are they digging it up? What right have they? Investigation. We'll see that the cement work is redone when we're finished. Well, this is impossible. I forbid it. This house is... Is my responsibility. No need to worry. Everything will be left exactly the way it was. We'll leave the house just as soon as the men are finished. Oh. Well, then perhaps I can keep my appointment with the hairdresser. I won't be long. She'll be back around nine. I'm sorry. I think you better stay. But I've told you everything I know. Did you kill Laura Muller? Did I kill... I can't take any more of this. Why would I want to kill Laura? She's done everything for me. She's given me a new life. Did you kill her? I know, of course I didn't kill her. Well, then there's no need to be upset. Oh, my nerves. I got to have something. Glass of sherry. Yes. 
going to take them. That all depends, ma'am. There's no reason for this. You don't know that anything's happened to Laura. That's right. Laura's the best friend I have in the world. Eleven years. That's how long she fought to make them let me out of prison. She's the only one who believed in me. Yes, ma'am. She is. She's given me everything. She wants me to have everything. Everything I want. I wouldn't have a reason for killing her. Why, my clothes, my home here, money. They're all Laura. She's given them to me. Would you like a glass of sherry, Sergeant Pratty? No, no thanks. You know, Laura was much older than I, Sergeant. She could have taken her own life. She didn't have much to live for. Old and sick. But I got everything to live for. Laura used to tell me that. So she gave me everything. Laura was much older than I. Would you care for a glass of sherry, Sergeant Romero? No, thank you. This whole thing's so silly. Laura's away on a trip. She's much older than I am, you know. I'm 38. You wouldn't take me for a woman 38 years old, would you, Sergeant? No, ma'am. I know I'm not really young anymore, but I'm still attractive, don't you think? A lot of men prefer mature women. Women with experience, background. I'd know how to take care of a man. Joe. Yeah. Joe, come on, my way. Yeah. We found her. She wanted to die. Call the coroner, Gil. Let's go, Miss Johnson. Laura wouldn't want this. She knows I didn't mean it. She's the only one who knows what I went through. Years in prison. Laura understood me. She gave me everything, everything. Yes, she did. Ask anybody. They all know how Laura felt about me. Ask anybody. We can't ask her. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On July 14th, trial was held in Superior Court, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Annie Marie Johnson was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. She was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. You have just heard Dragnet, authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet wishes to thank the editors of Radio Television Life magazine. They have judged Dragnet, the outstanding new program of the past radio season. Tomorrow, hear the Ronald Coleman's charming series, The Halls of Ivy, on NBC. Welcome back. Well, this was a good, enjoyable episode of Dragnet. It certainly is not going to make my list of my favorite, but it's a well-done uh, documentary-style story. 
And without a doubt, the uh, scene leading up to the discovery of the body is definitely very well done. It's an example of how, in producing Dragnet, Jack Webb used sound effects to really build the drama. The only thing I questioned there, I kind of wondered if it was even necessary to bring in the music. But still, just the way she was talking, it was a certain realism to it. Even how she kept uh, repeating herself, just showing how nervous she was, and how that tension was building, with the scream to cap it off. At any rate, we turn now to some listener comments and feedback, and... Uh, this one comes from our first Mike. He writes, I'm 67 years old and enjoy listening to your podcast on my iPod while walking my dog. Like almost everyone else, I enjoy Johnny Dollar, although the current episodes are not nearly as enjoyable as the five-parter. The later shows don't have enough time to properly develop uh, the stories. Uh, good point there, and I will say that uh, having listened to Have Gun Will Travel, CBS does start uh, allowing more time for the stories uh, later on if they follow that pattern. So hopefully around 1959-1960 episodes uh, will get a little better developed stories. But he goes on to say, uh, My current favorites are Dragnet and Philip Marlowe. I especially enjoy Gerald Moore. I was reading an article recently where James Gardner had mentioned that he really enjoyed working with Moore when he appeared on Maverick, because he was a true professional. And uh, definitely true of Gerald Moore. It was really a um, different era in acting, where you had less egos and more just professionalism and dedication to doing the job. Even while Moore was on uh, Philip Marlowe, he was... Uh, making guest appearances on other shows, even other uh, detective programs in other sort of uh, role. And this was while he was being recognized with awards and such for his lead radio acting on Marlowe. I think in ways, he he was kind of like uh, Martin Milner, who uh, played uh, Pete Malloy on Adam-12, and described himself as a working actor. And that's exactly what he was, whether he was the star of the show or he was playing a secondary character, if he was playing Philip Marlowe, or if he was Mr. Fantastic. You saw that same dedication uh, to quality work and just doing the job. Well, and on to his comments regarding Dragnet. As for Dragnet, I remember watching the early TV shows at my grandparents' house when I was young and kind of grew up with Jack Webb. As a teenager, I was more impressed by the fact he had been married to Julie London than I was by his acting. One slight criticism of the recent Big Girl episode. I was disappointed the ending did not ever explain the motivation behind the killer's actions in beating up and shooting his victims. Uh, keep up the good work. I look forward to many more enjoyable walks uh, with the dog listening to your program. Uh, well, good good point regarding the lack of uh, information on motivation. And uh, thanks so much for the comment and the support. I, I do think one thing, particularly with 1950s Dragnet, is that sometimes they don't really go beyond what the police would care about in terms of motivation. We heard one explanation with the statement that we were dealing with a psycho, and I think that the unnecessary brutality of the attacks 
really does bear that idea out. I think beyond the fact it was not relevant to them as investigating officers. So we didn't uh, actually hear it. And there are other episodes like that. And I tend to, I tend to think there's something to be said for them though, uh, particularly from the perspective of the modern listeners, because then we can kind of talk about it. We can think about it. And uh, it actually uh, makes the episode a little bit more uh, stimulating rather than having it held out to us. Another episode where all the motivations aren't laid out plainly, I'd say, would be The Big Hate. And there are a few others where they just really like to leave things to us to interpret. And then we have an actual letter from Sue. Uh, who uh, went ahead and sent in a donation uh, to the listener support campaign through our P.O. Box. Uh, hi, hi, Adam. Uh, I haven't been able to donate to your program in several years, so first of all, I'd like to give a shout-out to everyone who did donate to keep the Great Detectives podcast going and encourage any who can afford it to contribute on behalf of those who can't. Second, I want to comment on the Dragnet uh, child killer episode. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned you were surprised by the murderer the first time you heard it. I knew as soon as they introduced the character as a neighbor that he'd committed the crime because nowadays, tragically, we know children are more often in danger from people they know than strangers. So my interpretation was that the episode was a lot less shocking today uh, than it would have been in the 1950s. And, uh, I, I was, my wife was actually reading, uh, this letter and she speculated on my surprise being my ability to compartmentalize things into thinking and expectations for, uh, the 1950s versus what I would expect uh, from today's show. But you're right that there is, um, definitely a great risk that children face from people that they know and that they should be able to trust. And the child killer episode came from a time when we knew our neighbors and we trusted our neighbors. And because he lived in the same neighborhood as these girls, they didn't react to him as they would a normal stranger. In today's world, people who might live uh, 75, 100 feet away from you may be just as much a stranger as somebody who lives across town. Such is the state of the world we live in. Uh, and she says, uh, at the end of that episode, you read a listener comment about a previous Dragnet episode where Webb goes undercover and wanted to second the idea that listening to these early Dragnet episodes is giving me a much better appreciation for the talents of Jack Webb. I'm one of the people who grew up watching the TV episodes in the 1960s and therefore thought of him as a much more two-dimensional than he uh, was in these early days. I was also amused by some dialogue in a recent Nick Carter episode where he tells Patsy that he doesn't want to come across as a know-it-all. That is exactly my reaction to that character and why the Carter series is one of my least favorite of those you featured. Uh, overall, however, I really enjoy the series and your commentary. Uh, thank you for your work, Sue. Well, thanks so much, Sue. Well, so, and for those who aren't um, enjoying Nick Carter, I hope you'll like uh, Boston Blackie better, and he'll be here uh, next season, and for several seasons thereafter. And then we turn to an email from uh, the second Mike, who says, uh, Thank you for your excellent podcast. I'm a huge fan of Philip Marlowe, Johnny Dollar, and absolutely love Vincent Price as the Saint. 
Quick question, do you edit out some of the advertising? I know it may not be a popular opinion, but I think it would be great to hear more of those quirky, kishy, uh, mid-century ads. I really appreciate your insights and opinion on each show as well. Please keep up the great work. Uh, well, I'll go ahead and answer um, a question. Uh, we do edit out some, but not a whole lot. Uh, Dragnet, we do, and it's something we've done with uh, Dragnet um, uh, pretty much uh, the first time we were through it. And it's certainly something that can be a bit of uh, controversy and debate. I tend to remove the ads when I find them annoying myself. Now, let me go ahead and take just clarify one thing. If you are charged with preserving and distributing um, preserved copies of uh, old-time radio, like an organization like the Old-Time Radio Researchers, you should preserve the ads if they're in there. But it's basically, when it comes to rebroadcasting these, a lot of the organizations that have distributed uh, or just uh, broadcast them uh, with host have... Uh, removed some have chosen to remove them some have uh, chosen not to and most of them i do leave in i know that on my old time radio superman show i've had uh, uh a couple people say they wanted me to take the ads out of the superman show for uh pep but i personally don't have a problem with them the other shows other than dragnet i don't remove the ads though some of them have had the ads removed. That's been the case with most of the uh, recent uh, Nick Carter episodes. Uh, Johnny Dollar was on a sustaining basis, and most of the surviving uh, stories are Armed Forces Radio Services. So those had uh, public service announcements, uh, if those ads were included. Philip Marlowe at this point is on a sustaining basis. So is Crime and Peter Chambers, and so was The Saint. Finally, we have a note from Andrew who says, uh, uh, Dear Mr. Graham, do you know the Paul Temple radio series? It is, I believe, the longest-running radio detective series. Just thought I'd mention it, though I suppose you must have run across it. Uh, thank you ever so much for your efforts. I'm particularly enjoying uh, the Johnny Dollar. When I hear the theme music, I'm back in my room in the house I grew up in. So nice that these programs are still around for future generations to enjoy. With best wishes, uh, Andrew. Well, thanks so much. I have heard of Paul Temple. Paul Temple was probably the oldest of the uh, British um, radio detectives, beginning in 1938. Uh, though several detectives have been on American radio uh, prior to that. Sherlock Holmes, and Charlie Chan. Also, Mr. Keen Tracer of Lost Person. Though I suppose it could be said that Paul Temple was the first of the detectives who was entirely original to radio. And it did have a very successful run. Although British radio was, it was very different than American radio. American radio was, of course, uh, commercial. And when we had a detective show and it was popular, it would air 39 to 52 weeks per year. The Paul Temple stories were generally between six and eight episodes long, though there was a ten-part episode, and there were several one-part uh, Paul Temple stories that were 
uh, say, 45 minutes or an hour long. But the series did enjoy great success and ran off and on between 1938 and 68 making a story, at its height, two stories a year, and having gaps, in some case, of uh, two or three years between stories. And actually, since 2006, the BBC has been remaking some of the stories because uh, a lot of the early stories uh, were lost. In fact, of the Paul Temple stories before 1953, only the 1942 story, Paul Temple Intervenes, is in uh, general circulation as a complete uh, serial. And Mr. Temple did also spin off into television and film. So he's a character with a rich legacy and uh, began on radio. Uh, thanks so much for the comment, and I've, I have seriously got to check uh, some of these stories out, because uh, you're not the first person to mention that, uh, Andrew. All right, well, that will do it for today. We will be back on Monday with The Saint, and then on Saturday, join us for another episode of Dragnet. In the meantime, send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives, and become one of our friends on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Radio Detectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.